would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I'm recording from. I pay my respects to the Camaragal people and their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from and extend this respect to any First Nations listeners. Food is beautiful, food should be shared, always. And spaces where different communities intersect need to be a safe space if they want to flourish. Hi, I'm Sarah Malik, and this is My Ramadan, a podcast about how we experience Ramadan and Eid in modern multicultural Australia. When I was at school, Ramadan was something I didn't really talk about. It feels like that's changed dramatically in the last few years. So what happens when the culture you grew up compartmentalising suddenly becomes cool? From the rise of intermittent fasting and the iconic Lakemba markets, Ramadan has suddenly developed a hipster cachet it didn't used to have. So how do Gen Z Muslims in the West square this new visibility with historic Islamophobia? To talk about that and how Ramadan intersects with belonging and identity, I have Salia and Lena. Salia Iqbal is a journalist with Pedestrian TV and the host of the podcast, Here's the Thing Though. Lena Ali is a writer from Parramatta and hosts the Westies podcast. Welcome to the show, Lena and Salia. Hi. Hi, thank you for having us. So look, we have a bit of a South Asian vibe in the house today. Yes. Um, Salia, me, we're both Pakistani, Lena, Indian, so... Am I right in saying it was Rosa and Ramzan and Iftari? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Sari yes. rather than Sahur, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Right? Okay, so let's just go with that today. Um, so I'm just going to start with asking you what Ramadan was like for you both growing up. So I'll start with you, Salia. Honestly, very jubilant. Um, for me, it's really about family. And growing up, I lived in Mount Druitt. But a lot of my family lived in the inner south, Uncliffe, Rockdale, like that kind of area in Sydney. So it was so exciting because we would like drive the hour up and then like stay the weekend or stay several nights, like all my cousins. And then we would wake up all together. We were all like, you know what, like seven, eight, nine, ten. And we'd all wake up together at Sehri. So it's like big party vibes, even though it's 5 p.m. So it was really fun. Like it was very exciting. I don't think there was ever any like dread or it was a chore because it was like directly associated with like seeing the fam and having good time and sleepovers and junk food and staying up all night, no bedtime, which I think is like, yeah, especially I think in Pakistani families, a bit of a universal experience is the no bedtime. Everybody just stays up all night. (laughs) Yeah. And your grandma's cooking was a big part of Ramzan for you also. Yes. Because we would all go to her house. Like that was like the central point for us. So all of her kids and their kids would like all come to her place and stay from Friday to Sunday every week. And then we'd probably be there a couple of nights in the weekdays as well. And like we always started Eid there as well. Like it was really the hub for us. So she was definitely a huge pillar of the celebrations for us. Lena, your parents own a bustling Indian restaurant in Western Sydney. What were iftars like there? Opposite to what you had growing up was like family. We didn't have that. So for us, my parents, something I'm grateful for is that my parents actually did a thing where they and picked the people who would be in our lives very carefully. Mum and dad both grew up in Hyderabad and dad's college friends or his friends growing up. So there was a range, um, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, uh, all sorts of cultures and religions would come into it. And so when they, they sort of collectively migrated as a group here to Australia. So 
now they've got kids and they have their families here. And so for us, Ramadan is now like a integrated interfaith dialogue without the actual like formal aspect of the dialogue. So the iftars would happen at the restaurant sometimes. Sometimes we'd have monthly like get togethers there for Ramadan. And then you'd have dad catering at Paramount Mosque. Because our family business is food, food then becomes a very central part of what Ramadan is. I mean, it is in every culture, but for us, it's a different aspect. Yeah. And what was kind of the routine or ritual for you growing up? The morning wake up was usually, it started off with Prince, because Prince, um, who was our cat who passed away last November, for him it was all of a sudden his humans are up before the crack of dawn. <laughs> that one month of the year, it's like, why are they up? Usually I have to scream in their faces to even get the attention like 4am in the morning, but now they're willingly waking up. Pets get so confused. He was confused, but he was like... I know my duty for this month. And he would, you know, like we wouldn't miss Sahari because of him. My because, cat was the same. Yeah. Because, it was like an alarm clock. You do it like once or twice and they go, ha, ah, now I can do this. And then <laughs> your routine just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> and then at 4 a.m. it's like, get up, feed me. Because that means, because if we're eating, that means he's also going to get food. So he starts associating food with 4 a.m. and now we're waking up at 4 a.m. And so because it's been also in winter, like I would, you know, I'd be wearing my grandmother's coat, my brother and sister, like all stumbling downstairs and my mother is in the kitchen. So a lot of my non-South Asian Muslim friends associate suhoor with like very light food for us. We'd have kitchari in the morning or we'd have biryani or we'd have, you know, burgers, like like a proper meal. It's a proper meal. But And, like, when I said this to, like, for example, Arab friends or Afghan friends, and they'd be like, we have fruit. And I was like, nice, but we don't have that. It was seen as quite a weird thing because it, we have, like, proper meals and it's like a whole spread on the table. <laughs> Yeah, we would just do a lot of time leftovers as well from the mm-hmm. night before. Yeah, like that's so what I mean. All yeah. the curries from last mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also feel like people don't really understand that South Asians don't really believe in breakfast. Like we just do food all the time. Yeah, like, so paratas, let's just eat the curries, let's just go heavy duty. The experience of like a South Asian Muslim growing up Muslim is it's very non-Arab because the dominant discourse around the Muslim like experience of fasting or Ramadan or just the Muslim experience in general is very Arab dominant. So you wear certain types of clothing or you have certain type of languages or you're expected to know certain types of food, but those don't necessarily fit into our lives. And it's not because one's better than the other, but it's just simply because there's a cultural difference. There might be a religious similarity, but there's a cultural difference. So that's why I'm really happy today that we're all South Asian. What was it like for you both transitioning from that and practicing Ramadan as an adult? Because, you know, it's a big part of your family and your culture when you're growing up and you kind of take it for granted. But then when you start uni or work, you're the odd one out and it becomes a real choice. So tell me a bit about practicing as an adult and how that was for you both, Solia. When I moved out after uni and when I started a full-time job, like I was making like wheat picks for myself in the morning and I was like, I hate this. Where is the parata? <laughs> uh, which I, by the way, ended up buying because I was like, I can't, this is such a vibe killer. Like I really need to be having like wholesome home food for my sehri because it just doesn't feel right otherwise. But I feel like, yeah, it definitely um, became lonelier 
It did, but also there were just a lot of ways that I had to like adapt to that, which I also did, you know, started inviting my own friends over and hosting my own iftars instead of relying on like my family too, especially because my grandma passed away two years ago and the whole routine fell apart because there just wasn't that person organizing it all. I think the whole family kind of realized how much we relied on her to do it. Like we just expected her to invite everyone. We'd all be there. You'd see everyone. And then without her making those plans, you're like, oh, like I have to actually now take an active effort in messaging that family member being like, can we come over? Like, I haven't seen you in a few months. Um, haven't seen you all Ramadan, which is crazy because I see you all the time normally. Um, I think a lot of us, not just me, like in my family had to kind of adjust to her not being around as well, which completely changed the vibe. And then having to realize that we kind of have to make it our own now because we don't have her like directing. <laughs> yeah. Like the pillar of Ramzan for you in the family yeah. was gone. And now you had to figure out how you were going to maintain those traditions on your own. Yeah. And did that kind of highlight for you how important Ramadan and fasting was for you? Like, why did you want to keep it as part of your life? Yeah, in adulthood, you really kind of have to self-actualize and you start to have to be like, wait, am I doing this out of habit or am I doing this because I want to do this? So for me, like, I think Ramadan became in a way less about family because it, it started to become more about religion. Like it started to be a bit more spiritual for me and less just like tradition and routine. Like I started to have more intentionality behind fasting, which I have always found to really benefit me. And I think being an adult and also just life being a bit faster and a bit more stressful and having a bit less control over it. Like Ramadan for me actually really became a way to slow down and to like reinforce what is important to me and reassess what isn't important to me, to build good habits, just to take a step back and like reassess my life a little bit. And I also just find the spirituality of it all really like peaceful. I do. I'm, de I'm a stress head. And I'm always moving too fast. <laughs> and so for me, it's actually really valuable time to just like relax a bit because I am incapable of that. It's really evolved in what its meaning is for me because it's definitely far more personal now and far more like internal. Whereas before it was more about the colors, the food, the family, and it still is to an extent, but now there's definitely a real personal element that I didn't have before. Lena, you know, you haven't been able to fast for the past few years because of health reasons, but you still participate in different ways in Ramadan. And I think people don't realize that it has such a bigger dimension than just abstaining from food. There's so many different ways in which you can still practice. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? I did fast until I was 20 and I haven't fasted since, again, because of health reasons. And one of the things that I found really ostracizing was that after I, I couldn't fast anymore, people often assumed that my Ramadan meant less than theirs or that their, you know, their, their worship or their engagement with Ramadan, with Iftari, with Sehari was a lot more important or a lot more, you know, central to their lives than I guess my engagement with any of that stuff would ever be. There is such a huge exemption list for people who are not recommended to fast from the elderly, the pregnant, those who are breastfeeding, minors or people who can't for health reasons. And that's all overlooked, isn't it? Even like the exemptions that we have for Muslims, they're just sort of disregarded or seen as someone who's weak. If the alternative to me not fasting is me ending up either having some sort of cardiac arrest if I stand up or ending up in hospital, then at no point did God say, hey, man, listen, I want you to risk your life fasting for me because that's just not part of the gig. And so what eventually I had to do was that I had to figure out in what ways was I going to choose to interact and 
have Ramadan as part of my life. Like, I guess there was that internal guilt. I was recovering um, from my ED. There was internal guilt. There was external guilt. So that first year was quite detached. I would say I didn't engage with it. I felt quite lost. And I think for a few years, even prior to 2020, I'd been quite struggling, quite frankly, with my religion and like my identity with it, my relationship with it. Because as you said, like it comes out of tradition, it comes out of habit, it comes out of mum expects me to do so, dad expects me to do so. I think you could do like an entire podcast episode on just unwarranted opinions. Literally. <laughs> yeah. You literally about how people could. practice Islam. Yeah. I think especially Muslim women in particular hear it a lot, oh. especially like hijab-wearing Muslim oh, women as well. Buddy. And it's probably a lot of the reason why some younger Muslims like feel alienated Absolutely. from fasting. There's just so much guilting. No, there mm. is. Um, but in terms of how I ended up engaging with it, so that's like my long back story, and then ended up engaging was I actually found a lot of um, motivation sort of purpose even, even doing things like hosting iftars for non-Muslims or having iftars with my non-Muslim friends, going to like community iftars and stuff or like organizing them. It's really a wholesome experience eating together. Eating together, I think, is one of the most wholesome ways you can connect with people. So I'd say that's one of the ways that I was able to continue to sort of hold my roots and interact as someone who was non-fasting but still Muslim in Ramadan. Yeah, because yeah. food and the communal vibe was a big part of your childhood because yeah. you grew up in a restaurant, you yeah. grew up with a big family. So I can see how you associate both together in yeah. really positive ways. Mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I moved out alone and the eating alone sucked. Like now I like, I call my mom, I'm like, can you pick me up? And I, have, I try and have it that with her on the weekdays as well. Mm. So I'll like make something and then I'm like, I'm ready now. Like half an hour I have come get been me. there, Salia, <laughs> like sitting there, you know, eating Whitpicks by yourself because you've, you're living somewhere far away from your family and it's just sad, isn't it's it? It's so sad. <laughs> it's less so sad, sad now that I've like, you know, actually dealt with that issue and like really made a good routine. But I also moved out like the weekend Sydney's six-month lockdown started. Oh, so I moved damn. out on the Saturday and the Sunday the lockdown was announced Jesus. and then it just never ended. <laughs> so it was a really bad time to move out. Yeah, just like a very lonely time in general. So it was like, it was rough. So Sully, I did want to talk to you about a piece that you wrote about the gentrification of Lakemba markets, which was a really great piece. And I'm going to get you to read a little section of it if you could. Sure. Considering this is an event held by the Muslim community, it felt wrong to see locals driven out. A woman who appeared to be possibly drunk yelled at me to go back to where I came from as she totted past me on the sidewalk. But for the first time in my life, I'm finding myself resenting how mainstream the markets have become. Suddenly, I wish the markets were a secret. Wow. So can you tell us about this moment and why you decided to write the piece? So um, I love the Lakemba Ramadan night markets. I don't even know what year they started, but I've just been going for as long as I can remember. And I've lived like all over Sydney as well. So I love it because every time I go there, I see like all of my like four friends when I was like 10, all of them go. I see all these people that I, you know, never see. Like we're not even really like friends, friends anymore, but like we see each other. And we're like, oh my God, it's like re it's reunion. It's really nice. And then this past year, so in 2022, it was, first of all, packed, which like necessarily isn't a problem on its own. But mm -hmm. I was already like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to wait in line like two hours for a parata. Mm -hmm. <laughs> already like a bit salty. But you know what? Like we can't complain about like Muslim small businesses making money. Like I'm not mad about it. Uh, but then just like as the night wore on and I went a few times, 
um, it was getting a bit frustrating because I was starting to feel like it had been gentrified a lot aside from the fact that everything was just a million times more expensive yeah it was just like it was busy it was messy it like felt like I was at more of a festival vibe than like Mm -hmm. Ramadan night markets for a bit but again it was like I was like you know what whatever like things happen um but then on the maybe second or third time that I went that month and I usually go like once or twice a week I was just noticing a real different vibe. It was yeah. a Saturday, which definitely contributed to that because I think a lot of people who are not local to the area come to mm-hmm. the markets on Saturdays. Makes sense, like touristy vibe. It felt very much like I was in the inner west yeah. in like Newtown. <laughs> but still, it was like, it was fine. And then I was just slowly like noticing things around me that were increasingly disrespectful. Yeah. Um, and then I had this woman who was very drunk, which obviously she wasn't really part of the markets, but she like walked past me and like told me to go back to where I came from and my jaw just like dropped to the ground everybody around me was shocked like there were like three or four other Muslims who were just like all just looking at me and I was you could tell the look on our face was like did did that just happen like you're welcome to come but don't be rude um so I put up an Instagram story just being like I can't believe this has happened I'm super frustrated has anybody else felt this way I, I received a lot of responses from other Muslim people on Instagram uh, including you. Yeah, I did. Um, complaining about similar things. Like one person complained to me saying that they outright saw white people in the lines mocking the Pakistani accents. That was me. That was you. Yeah, yes. that was me. <laughs> A lot of young people feel really disenfranchised from their Muslim community because they have more progressive ideals, because they're sick of being guilt tripped, as you said, yeah. which the aunties love to do. So there's so much fracturing. And to like, come to this space that's really for Muslims to feel a sense of community and you're welcome to come, but then to come and to make it unsafe for the Muslims that it's for, I think is really wrong. But it's so strange how a lot of the things that you grew up with doing that were kind of mocked or looked down upon or not understood have suddenly become cool. And it's it, sometimes it's nice to have that mainstream visibility and understanding, but also it comes with its other element as well. Going back to the dinners that you had growing up, yeah. you know, the multicultural dinners yeah. with your family, friends, and there were people from all different communities yep. and they came to the dinners with a sense of respect and a sense of joy. And I guess, what did you learn from those dinners about how we can interact with each other in Ramzan? Respect and tolerance. That's it. That's literally the foundation of how you do it. Right. And like, for example, my uncle, who's Hindu, and then the other one who's Christian and they're practicing, don't necessarily understand to a full extent why my dad fasts or, you know, or why Tarawih is so important. And that's okay. They don't need to. They don't necessarily understand or connect to it in a way that my dad does or we do. And that's okay. But the thing is, when they come, when they eat, when they participate in Eid, when they participate in Ramadan iftars, when they come with us to the Lakemba night markets, There is no sulking because the recognition is there, the respect is there, the understanding that this is not my space. I am here as a visitor, as a guest. And if I want to continue to be part and continue to be invited back, I need to recognize that I have to respect their boundaries. So I think that was why last year when you know, when the article came out and so many people reacted to it and you know, you reached out via Instagram. I think it was a big shock for me because I had grown up, not externally, but at least internally within, you know, the the handpicked community that I had as a child, seeing that respect. I know your dad insisted on not serving beef at the family restaurant out of respect for Hindu customers. What did those dinners growing up teach you? Food is beautiful. Food should be shared, always. And spaces where different 
communities intersect need to be a safe space if they want to flourish. They won't flourish otherwise. Mm. Safe spaces are very intentional things. And even the restaurant itself has never sold any beef because there's a recognition, because that's a personal preference for him and he knows how deep that religious rooting is within him. He has made a very conscious effort for more than 15 years. And so that same respect is extended to any people who have certain dietary requirements as well. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I love that. And it's really just about... Not appropriation, but appreciation. Yeah. And how we can share with respect. Yeah. Right? yeah. I think that that's the vibe that I'm getting. And it is interesting, you know, when you do grow up, you kind of have two different lives living in the West. Sometimes you feel like you can't share aspects of yourself. <laughs> Not everyone, but some people feel that. And so it, it can be difficult to open up yourself and your traditions to other people. Mm-hmm. You feel a bit vulnerable. You want it to be respected and appreciated. Our generation, unlike our parents, we don't have the same sense of communities that they did. So we really have to create a chosen community. Um, so, Salia, tell me a bit about how you brought your partner into Ramadan, your partner who wasn't Muslim. Yes, I was nodding along to everything you were saying. So my partner reverted in December. So he's Muslim now, but he wasn't before that. And we've been together for four years um, and we're getting married soon. But um, I yeah, just thought I would mention that because it's exciting for me. Hey, congratulations. Um, thank you. But for the last three years, he's like done Ramadan with my family, fasted all the days with us and it's been a really interesting cultural exchange for both of us because I've obviously never celebrated Christmas and I also have never had any reason to or like had somebody in my life that was celebrating Christmas so when we got together like not only did he start doing Ramadan and Eid with me but also I had to attend his family Christmas obviously and he's got a very small family as well and I have a very big family. So there were like a lot of cultural differences. Um, and they're a very small family and their traditions are very different to mine. And it was really interesting because one of the things that like I was actually genuinely shook about, but seems really obvious, is like in my family, we only give gifts to people younger than us. And I don't know if that's like a Muslim thing or just my, my family. I don't even know. But like I don't get my mom an Eid gift, but my mom gets me. I get my younger siblings an Eid gift, but they don't get me one because it's like, it's like the gifts are going downwards, I guess. That's, yeah. just, that's just always how no, I've yeah, done. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, mus- well? it's a Muslim thing. Okay. It's a South Asian thing as well. Yeah, like you give gifts to those younger than you. So I've never bought my mum uh, an Eid gift. And then I started doing Christmas with him and I had to get like his mum and his aunts and stuff like Christmas gifts. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, actually unfathomable. I was like, what do I buy? I'm so used to buying kids gifts. But anyway, it was like an adjustment. Last year, actually, Mitch and I hosted his family Christmas. So we did like all of the cooking. I had to make like a British roast, which was a whole experience for me. Oh my God, that sounds fascinating. A British roast in my life. So yeah, that was really interesting. Also, my partner and I are both vegan. My partner's been vegan for like three, oh, maybe two, two and a half years. And I've been vegan for like a little under a year. So that's also been like another thing we have to navigate because that was a real issue for me during Ramadan and Eid. And my family is Pakistani, so there's just nothing vegetarian. So on his family, they're like, no, we want the roast. And on your family, you're like, no, we're going to have the mint samosas. Both families probably didn't like the vegan vibes. No, they didn't. It was very frustrating. Um, So we like have a routine for both now. So for like his family Christmas, we bring our own like vegan roast stuff. And obviously I don't drink. So it's really cute because I always make sure they've got like soft drinks for me and stuff while they obviously drink. For my family as well, we do our own like, we, we like go to the events, but we bring 
bit of a potluck vibe where we bring a bunch of our own vegan fired desi food which by the way has been a learning process i can make vegan bundia now i can make a killer vegan butter chicken we're doing palak paneer but with tofu (laughs) i've really been in my cooking era since i moved because i moved out and became vegan kind of around the same time so like i had to learn how to cook everything we should have called this episode vegan vegan ramzan vegan iftar like how to do it and what was it like for him your partner to fast and to be introduced to this culture i think initially he really struggled with fasting because for us it's like that, that type of hunger we're kind of used to and expect because mm-hmm. we've been fasting since we were kids yeah um but for him it's like obviously he's never had any reason in his life to not eat mm-hmm. so like learning to fast as an adult i think is a lot harder than learning to fast as a child Absolutely. um so i think it was really quite hard for him but he's a trooper he did all 30 days every month that he fasted and he wasn't even muslim yet but he um yeah he did really struggle with that but he really loved the community aspect because obviously dragged him to all the family iftars. He does eat with my family and they like are obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love like a new person. So he was a new person to feed pakoras to. Literally, yeah. he was spoiled beyond belief um, with all this food and stuff. But yeah, so for him, I think like it evened out in the sense that he got so much from Ramadan Eid, especially that he wasn't really getting in his own family celebrations because he has like a very small, slightly fractured family and we have a very large, deeply connected family. So it was like new and exciting and like strangely, it was really meaningful, I think, for him. He was like, wow, like I've never had these connections before. I've never felt this sense of community before. I've never like just had this sense of like, communal spirituality as well because I think especially in like western families spirituality can be very individual but for our family it's very interconnected like it is obviously an individual journey but you share that faith with others and that can be really affirming so I think that was really exciting for him as well so it's actually really exciting because this year is going to be the first Eid and Ramadan that his mum does with my family so we're like dragging her in we're gonna absorb her into the big Pakistani family I'm sure to be a bit of a cultural shock for her but it's gonna be fun because like for her like you know she doesn't have this big family these big feasts so the biggest journey was definitely the vegan cooking was like a huge <laughs> part of it uh, having to figure out like which vegan yogurt tastes the best in like Raita has been a whole thing. Oh, wow. I um, think you should definitely do a vegan Ramzan cookbook. I think that should be honestly, the Honestly, I should. You but will I, get published so far. <laughs> I love the idea of, you know, you bring someone new into the culture and you evolve and adapt it. And also you see and appreciate things about your own culture that you didn't. There's so stranger. much that I took for granted in my family that I didn't realize was special until I was sharing my family with another person who was like, oh, my family doesn't do that. And I was like, oh my God, you've, you've been living without this. <laughs> like, it like made me appreciate so much that I just thought was like normal and wasn't like, an intentional thing that me and my family do. Time is nearly up for us, uh, which is a bit sad because I feel like it's gone by very quickly. Um, and I think I'm going to end with some rapid fire questions. So hit me with your one word answer. Where's the oddest place you've broken your fast? Probably a car. I was actually going to say the exact same thing. Yeah. I actually don't think I've had too many weird places breaking uh-huh. my fast. Probably cars and trains. Yeah. Yeah, same. On the way back from work. Yeah. Yes, very the much day. on the commute. Yep. Oddest place that you've prayed? Uh, like cliffside. <laughs> Be careful you don't fall off the cliff. Yeah. 
Mine is the breastfeeding cubicle in Bondi Junction's parents' room. I worked in Bondi Junction for five years and there is like nowhere to pray. So I would like pray in the like little like breastfeeding cubicle because it's usually empty and Mm. like there's some privacy. Mm. There's no like loud music playing. Mm. It was like the best Mm -hmm. I could do. Um, What is the strangest thing someone has said to you about Ramadan? Lena? Oh, it's probably just the not even water thing. That's probably it. One person once revealed that they thought we just like don't eat at all. No, it's like, uh, yeah, we yeah. would all be dead if <laughs> yeah, that was we, the case. There is, there is food involved. There, there is food. We There's do a lot eat. Of food we do eat actually. at some point. What do you miss most in Ramadan, Lena? The freedom to do shit after dark. I'll say that right now because you have iftar, then you have tarawih, then you need to go to sleep because next morning you wake up at four. I miss being able to do stuff in the evening. Yeah. 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 Mine is similar, like so social events. Yeah. Like, because mm-hmm. a lot of my friends aren't Muslim. Like, whenever I get invited to things, I hate having to be like, no, sorry, like, I need to prioritize Ramadan, which I'm not, I'm not upset about prioritizing yeah. it, mm-hmm. but the FOMO is real. Yeah. And for some reason, there are so many birthdays around Ramadan. For some reason, I'm like, why yeah. do you all be born in here? It's devastating. Yep. All the morning teas, everything happening yeah. in Ramadan. <laughs> yes. And last question your favorite iftar food? Oh, okay. For me, dahi vade. Dahi vade. Like, they slap, bro. They are so good. Well, you can't go wrong with fried dumplings in yogurt coated in spices. I was going to say the same thing, but I'm going to change my answer now and do my second best, which is bundia, which is like almost the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love, I only ever get day in Ramadan too, because I don't know how to make it. My mom makes it in Ramadan. My auntie does. It's the only time I get it is in Ramadan. We're having such a South Asian episode today. Yeah, we are. I'm going to add to it because I think for me, it's samosas. And that is just like my happy place. Those, that crunchy samosa, that chutney. Mm. Thank you so much for joining me, Lena and Salia. I hope that you've had a fun time and I really appreciate your insights. Thank you for having us. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks, Sarah. We loved being here. Ramadan Kareem, everyone, and thank you for listening. The next episode is particularly delicious. We have MasterChef contestant Amina El Shafe and cross-cultural consultant Tasneem Chopra to chat all things iftar and food. I hope you'll join me for it. Hit the follow button in your podcast app and please share or review the podcast if you're enjoying it. This episode was presented by me, Sarah Malik. Our audio engineer is Jeremy Wilmot. Executive producers are Sarah Malik and Caroline Gates. If you want to get in touch, email myramadan at sbs.com.au. You can find My Ramadan in the SBS audio app or at sbs.com.au slash audio.